0: This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 22nd of October 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday, the 22nd of October. Coming up, the journalist and communications consultant Simon Brook will be here to ponder the UK's latest leadership contest. Yes, we've lost count too. Also ahead, Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller will be telling us about some of the week's
1: weirder stories. And clinging even more grimly to the subject of competitions decided by voting for your choice from a field of gaudily plumed shriekers, we learned of a significant improvement to next year's Eurovision Song Contest. It's going to be shorter.
0: And a bit later on today's programme, we'll be hearing from Jurgen Boos, who's President and CEO of Frankfurt Book Fair. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin. The US Congressional Committee investigating last year's Capitol riot has issued a legal summons ordering the former president, Donald Trump, to testify to lawmakers. Trump could face criminal prosecution if he doesn't comply with the summons. Italy's far-right leader, Giorgio Malone, has accepted the job of forming the country's next government. That means that Malone and her allies will form Italy's most right-wing administration since the fall of Benito Mussolini at the end of the Second World War. Supporters of the former British Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, says he has enough support to enter the leadership contest. Candidates need the backing of 100 Conservative MPs to stand. It's thought that the former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, will now enter the race. And the Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and his Japanese counterpart, Fumio Kishida, have agreed to strengthen security ties. The pair, who were meeting in the Australian city of Perth, said that they would update a 15-year-old defence pact. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Simon Brooke is in the studio with me, our regular guest. He's a journalist, he's a communications consultant. Simon, this has just been crazy. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> UK politics is insane.
2: It really is, yeah. It's just... I think the problem is that the more insane it gets, there's almost like a sort of momentum hit, do you know what I mean? People almost forget, or at least at the centre of power, almost seem to forget what normal political life should be about and the, the idea that you can you know, return a prime minister or remove a prime minister the way you might take some clothes back to a shop because you didn't like them, has sort of become the norm somehow. And I think the problem is also that uh, the people who are in charge, if you like, the people who are making decisions here, are, of course, MPs and that small number of Tory party members. And I think the danger is, looking from the outside in this case, it does look as if they have sort of almost lost connection with reality and certainly with, dare I say, ordinary voters.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. So the issue here is that there are three, probably three candidates, three possible candidates. They all have to breach 100 votes by their fellow MPs to be eligible to stand and we will know the result on Friday. However, if by the end of Monday when that limit has to be breached, there is only one that's got that far, then that person will automatically become the Prime Minister. But of course the MPs that are voting for them uh, have absolute self-interest at heart. Out. What they want is their own office uh, absolutely guaranteed. They probably want a big job. They certainly don't want to be kicked out by their constituents. And there lies the problem is that their constituents, all quite like Boris Johnson, or used to, and it seems that uh, for all of his uh, misbehaviour and the fact that he was absolutely kicked out, uh, a lot of people of the voting public still want him. In fact, there are people tweeting about the fact that MPs are being told they will be deselected unless they vote for him, which is is extraordinary given the fact that he's got this huge cloud hanging over him uh, he's he's got to face a parliamentary committee he could be removed
2: absolutely I, and i think what's interesting is that there's there's very little that unites the tory party at the moment but one thing that does seem to unite them is a fear of an uh, uh, an election mp's tory mp's anyway really don't want an election because they would lose well yeah absolutely well we've seen you know a, a deficit i mean the tory party uh, poll rating has fallen to historic lows. There has never been a party with such low uh, opinion poll rating. So you can imagine a lot of Tory MPs are looking at that and thinking, A, I really, really don't want an election now. For goodness sake, let's avoid that. And B, what's the best What's the best bet in terms of a party leader who could, could let, hold, help me to hold on to my seat? And I think the the problem with, I mean, the phrase he or she is marmite is overused, but I can't think of any politician in modern times who has quite the love-hate Uh, standing amongst, uh, as you say, amongst MPs, amongst Tory party members, amongst the voting public as Boris Johnson. Um, Very often, if you look in politics, there comes a time when political parties have to... They can either follow their heart or their head. You know, we've seen before, for instance, uh, the case of David Cameron versus David Davis, you know, a decade ago or more, uh, when the party really liked what David Davis was saying to them, the kind of politics that he was espousing... But they thought, actually, will he resonate with the country? Will he give us the kind of election result we want? Probably not. It it does have to be David Cameron. So much as they didn't feel that connection with David Cameron, they thought he was a sort of a vote winner. So this is what people will be looking at with Boris Johnson. But as you say, the problem is, if he does win, uh, if he does become prime minister, then... There's very little the, the, his government could do because uh, the people will be waiting to see what the privilege, Privileges Committee has to say to him. And meanwhile, you can bet the opposition is going to keep the pressure on him about that.
0: Absolutely. Now, of course, one of the reasons, well, the main reason that Truss and her Chancellor, who it seems it's crazy to think just a week ago they were both still in office yeah, I remember that. Uh, but they uh, tanked the economy uh, mm. and their mm. their mini budget absolutely mm. scared the markets and mm. really even though much of it's been reversed the damage has been done and the people of britain will be paying for this for a very long time how have the markets reacted to the prospect of Boris Johnson's return. The FT has a piece on this today.
2: They do and the headline is Investors and MPs take fright at the prospect of Boris Johnson's return. Yes, and the piece points out that uh, really what the markets want of course is is consistency and stability and uh, there's real concerns here that you know that that even if he is overwhelmingly elected, even if he does seem to have a comfortable mandate, a majority in that way, um, we know from... the last time he was in office, that a Johnson administration, a Johnson premiership, is very much a roller coaster. Um, And so we've seen that uh, a third credit agency, Moody's, has changed the UK's outlook uh, to negative, down from stable, uh, the the FT quotes. And it talks about other people, about, uh, for instance, Jane Foley, who is head of currency strategy at Rabobank, says that Johnson's previous time in office had been characterised by, open quotes, a lack of leadership from a government very distracted by one scandal after another so it does make you think what's new here so i think one of the things that tory mp's will be looking at this weekend is looking at the markets and obviously it you know it doesn't matter directly to them uh, uh what the markets think but what it does what that does have a bearing on, of course, is things like interest rates and also the amount of interest that the government has to pay on the huge and rising debt. Um, so I think the markets, uh, given their great scepticism of Boris Johnson, will probably be one of the things that Tory MPs will take into account.
0: Yeah. Now, I mean, there have been just countless column inches about this here in Britain. Obviously, we're all obsessed with it. But it seems the rest of the world is also taking notice and not in a good way.
2: <laughs> yes. Um, funny, the FT... Sorry, the Times has a, a piece, actually. And it's quite funny because, uh, obviously, the comparisons made with Italy, which is a country which is used to political turmoil. But according to the Times, Italians have reacted angrily to the emerging view that UK's British politics has reached Italian levels of chaos... Claiming that Westminster is in a league of its own, thanks to Brexit, so it's uh, so if you're competing for the the world's most or Europe's most chaotic uh, political uh, class environment, environment whatever, uh, then Italy doesn't want to be part of that uh, competition, and and they're very upset about that. Um, other papers, it's it, in, in some cases that the the Times points out. In France, for instance, it's more sorrow than anger or whatever. Obviously, Russia has been delighted in it. Um, uh, President Putin... I mean, this is. I think this is one of the big problems, isn't it, that this kind of chaos shows to every dictator, every populist or whatever... The opportunity it gives them the opportunity to point at what is happening in so-called democratic Britain and just to say that it doesn't work. This democracy does business, does it? You know, it's it's chaos or whatever. Um, so, uh, according to the Times, for instance, Germany, the German press initially reacted to Truss's re- resignation with the air of zoo visitors watching a hungry <laughs> polar bear on the loose. Um, but I think there's also, uh, yeah, and, uh, and, and uh, the Frankfurter uh, Reichskau newspaper says uh, the chaos in Britain has reached perfection, uh, rather sarcastically or whatever. Um, but I think the problem is, of course, uh, France, Germany, uh, lots of other European countries, whatever... They think of Italy also, oh, sorry, whatever they think of Britain, <laughs> whatever they think of the UK, whatever they think of Britain, you know, does regard it. It has an important role to play in the world in terms of geopolitical relations, the economy, all those sort of things. And just to see it in this utter chaos does have implications for other countries as well.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, there are, there are just reactions from all over the world. Every, every mm-hmm. kind of major newspaper in Europe yeah. has obviously uh, followed this in, in some way. And it's, it's, you know, I mean, for instance, here we're looking at El Pais. The only positive lesson that can be gleaned from the crisis is that no leader should resort to fiscal fables for personal gain or to hold on to power. Um, and, and, just, uh, and then, of course, um, Ireland. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're looking at, uh, given the, the, the fairly significant geopolitical issues facing Europe, like the war in Ukraine and the uh, energy crisis, stability is very important. Well, of course, that's something that just isn't happening here. Um, I think it's probably time to see how Andrew (laughs) Muller has interpreted everything that's gone on this week.
1: We learned this week that the standard British pub quiz question concerning the UK's shortest serving Prime Minister has been rewritten, allowing the ghost of George Canning a rest at last from nearly two centuries of relentless summoning. At which point, we're going to need a revolving door sound effect. Before we learned that despite this assertion, made as recently as Wednesday...
0: I am a fighter and not a quitter.
1: ...Liz Truss is, in fact, a quitter.
0: I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party.
1: So we learned that we now await another Tory leadership contest. Which we learned will hopefully be shorter than the last epic reenactment of the closing scene of Reservoir Dogs. Although, if they could get it all bagged in time for us to write next week's monologue, that would be just dandy. Anyway. <laughs> If we did learn anything else this week, and let's face it, we didn't, it is that one does not want to mess with the Guardian-reading tofu-eating wokarati. at which point we can fill in the backstory somewhat and we will not be dignifying with the response any suggestion that we'd already written and recorded this bit before Trust threw the towel in and are now furiously trying to edit our way back into some facsimile of contemporaneity. They don't ever oh, catch what? on. Yeah. Not sure.
0: True. I've got just rewrite
1: it. No, you shut up. So this was Home Secretary Suella Braverman on Tuesday, explaining why nothing was the fault of the people who have been in government for 12 years. It's a Labour
0: Party. It's the Lib Dems. It's the Coalition of Chaos. It's the Guardian reading, to- tofu eating, wokerati, dare I say, the anti that we have to thank for the disruption
1: that we are seeing on our roads today. Gone within 24 hours, she was scythed down in her prime by, doubtless, this same omnipotent cabal of sandal-shod vegan cyclists. However, we learned that this same all-powerful clique of soy-milk-slurping, ivory-towered, dwelling bunny-huggers was not done yet, with furtively manipulating a clearly helpless Conservative Party as further chaos was orchestrated, climaxing in the astonishing crescendo of Liz Truss's defenestration after 44 days in office, if rather few of them in charge. There was a whole thing with a House of Commons division, which either was or wasn't a confidence vote, at which the Prime Minister, as she then was, forgot or didn't forget to vote for herself. The resignation or not of the Chief Whip and Deputy Chief Whip, allegations of actual argy-bargy and a quantity more of similar undignified brouhaha before Tory backbencher Charles Walker apprehended that here was one of those febrile moments at which MPs, to whom nobody usually pays any attention, have a crack at getting on the news and spoke for the nation. I think it's a shambles and a disgrace. I think it is utterly appalling.
0: So so you seem quietly... I'm,
1: I'm, I'm livid. And, you know, I really shouldn't say this, but I hope all those people that put Liz Truss in number 10, I hope it was worth it. More on all this next week, doubtless. But sticking with the subject of dubious democratic processes producing victories for candidates nobody really wanted in the first place and who were never likely in any event to do much beyond an amount of squawking and flapping, we learned that, once again, New Zealand's annual Bird of the Year contest has occasioned controversy. I like birds. Attentive listeners to these monologues, like there are any other kind, will recall that in last year's New Zealand Bird of the Year contest, there was a thing when it was won by a bat, which, while it does have two wings, isn't a bird, just as the fact of having four legs does not make a table a zebra. In previous years, there have been influxes of barely explicable votes from Russia. Honestly, has the FSB nothing better to do? And in a demonstration of the suave and and subtle sense of humour for which Australians are justly renowned, an Australian-based attempt to skew the poll in favour of amusingly named waterfowl, the shag. This year, we learned, organisers of the poll have disqualified the fat, flightless nocturnal parrot, the kakapo, also famous for a mating call which sounds like a party happening three houses away. We learned that the Kakapau, as a two-time winner, had been struck from the pole to give someone else a chance. And clinging even more grimly to the subject of competitions decided by voting for your choice from a field of gaudily plumed shriekers, we learned of a significant improvement to next year's Eurovision Song Contest. It's going to be shorter. (laughs) We learned that Montenegro and North Macedonia had both withdrawn, citing budgetary concerns associated with having to help make up a shortfall in funding occasioned by Russia's ejection from the competition. We learned that, therefore, next year's iteration of the pan-continental warbling tournament will have to struggle on without the likes of this, with which North Macedonia crashed and burned at the semi-final stage this year. mallet. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller.
0: Thank you very much to Andrew. We fundamentally disagree on the Eurovision (laughs) contest. I think that's a fight I don't want to get into.
2: (laughs) Vicious argument, yeah. Uh, Simon Mm. Brooke
0: is still with me. Simon, let's have a look at the South China Morning Post because, Mm. of course, the 20th annual Congress of the Mm. Chinese Communist Party Mm. uh, has been on. Uh, And tell me what what the main takeaways from that have been.
2: Yeah, so lots of coverage, obviously, of um, the uh, the convention, the uh, the Congress, sorry, and the fact that Xi Jinping has strengthened his power. He's now uh, got this uh, third, uh, historic third term in office. The South China Morning Post, obviously, reporting on it, and very much their line is that uh, one of the things she has done is swept away uh, the old guard as part of his grip on power. So it lists various People, including their ages, older people, uh, members of the the senior leadership of the party, who uh, will no longer be in power as a result of this. And um, as the paper points out, it gives him more choice for his uh, ch- sorry, more opportunities for a choice of his team over the next five years and beyond. So interesting that. Um, as part of his real grip on power, not only has he bulldozed through this change, uh, but also he has swept away the old guard as well. And it just occurred to me: there's. I wonder if there's parallels, almost. I mean, people are constantly comparing with Mao Zedong, aren't they? And I wonder whether there's a sort of comparison, almost, with the Cultural Revolution here. You know, when, when, uh, when Mao reached over the heads of the senior party members to the to the younger, to the youth of the country, and we saw that terrifying madness of, of the Cultural Revolution. I'm, I'm sure we won't see anything as extreme as that this time, but it does seem to be that Xi, conscious of his age, um, is is trying to bring on younger people who can really bolster his position.
0: But as you say, that is the danger, leaving people like Li Keqiang and Wang Yang out of the, the Central Committee. You've got but very powerful people there with a lot of friends. Uh, And if there was going to be any kind of challenge, perhaps that's where it might come from.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I suppose that's the danger. I mean, uh, the risk, I think the other risk, possibly as well, as some people have discussed, is that um, much focus as well on Taiwan. Um, That The Daily Telegraph newspaper here in the UK, China could invade Taiwan by the end of the year, US officials warn. And so I think there's a concern amongst some as well that, getting rid of the grizzled grey heads, if you like, those who might uh, take a sort of more considered approach. You might get young hotheads who... Could possibly, uh, you know, drive that uh, that possible invasion of Taiwan. And of course, we have to remember that part of Xi's uh, pitch, if you like, not that he needs it because he's already uh, he, he's already uh, completely unassailable in many ways. But part of his pitch was this idea that he refused to uh, refused to refuse, if you like, that there would any be there would be taking Taiwan by force. So he has made it clear that taking Taiwan by force, making it part of China, uh, is something that he's considered.
0: Absolutely. Now, a lot of this is all about preserving Chinese culture. And I want to look at one of the major culture stories that's been happening in the world this week because it's the Frankfurt Fair. Uh, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by the Frankfurt Book Fair's uh, president and CEO now, that's Jurgen Boos. Good morning to you, Jurgen.
3: Good morning, and thank you for having me.
0: Well, it's really lovely to, to speak to you. Is this the first post pandemic iteration of, of the Book Fair?
3: Oh, we did have um, a digital book fair and a hybrid one last year. But actually, yes, indeed, this is the first in-person after the pandemic, and it's wonderful.
0: How has it changed since before COVID?
3: Oh, it didn't change too much, actually. It's still the most international book fair in the world. It's people from 100 countries coming, attending, 4,000 publishers being here with stands. So it feels a bit like 2019.
0: Uh, And has the worldwide economic slump affected the publishing industry? I mean, are there still huge deals being done?
3: Yes, they are. Actually, publishing has been proven to be quite resilient over hundreds of years. And you have to look into each market separately. So Germany is a very saturated market. But actually in Spain, Italy, we're seeing growth in the publishing industry So if you look into certain territories, if you look into children's books, we are seeing growth. If you talk audio books, there's a growth. So I'm quite positive about the industry.
0: Mm -hmm. And have you seen any particular trends in publishing this year?
3: Yeah, what you do see and what you also see if you look at the Booker Prize or the German Book Prize or the Nobel Prize, it's it's a lot about auto-fiction, yeah? So so, so it's people who actually use um, combine their biography with some sort of uh, fiction, novelization, so this trend is still existing.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, for the Bookmaster this year, was was there a sort of overarching theme?
3: Oh, the big theme, actually, is it's the political situation, yeah, the world has gone completely crazy and we do have so many stages here and I'm meeting in about an hour time, the wife of the Ukrainian president, Mrs. Zelenska. She's here to meet with uh, the, our president's wife. And it became very, very political.
0: And I understand you were addressed by the Ukrainian president on online, virtually.
3: Yeah, we had a meeting two days ago. Uh, there was a meeting of the Federation of European Publishers, and Mr. Zelensky addressed them, and he gave an excellent speech, actually, and actually talking about the importance of culture, especially that Ukrainian authors are visible, that the publishers are visible to protect the Ukrainian culture.
0: Mm. Uh, were any countries actually banned from the fair?
3: We had some issues, actually, after uh, we decided earlier this year that we don't want to see a national stand from Russia, yeah, since Russia actually, um, this stand is paid for by the government, so we decided actually to ban Russia this year. Mm.
0: And Iran?
3: Uh, We had some discussions with Iran uh, only last week, and we said we're supporting the demonstrations and the young people in Iran, and then Iran decided not to take part in this book fair. Mm.
0: Do you think that the big book events like Frankfurt are still relevant? Are they still the place to do business, or has much of that gone online?
3: No, actually, it's the other way around. People really want to see each other at least once a year. I had a meeting of international book fair directors, from 15 countries last night. And everybody was so positive. And actually, most of them, the book fairs which took place in in the past 12 months, had, um, especially if they're addressing the reader, had their best year ever. So people want to see each other.
0: Mm. And of course, that face-to-face business is great. But Frankfurt's also a lot about the partying, isn't it?
3: lot of our parties so for me at least I didn't sleep more than two hours now in the past <laughs> five days and I think for a lot of our visitors it's the same Yeah, yeah
0: and, and the kind of hotel life and all the rest of it. Um, uh, Jürgen how is your event going to grow what what do you see for the, for the coming years?
3: I, I don't see actually um, uh, like like growing in our traditional sector and with printed books but uh, what we've been seeing here as a lot of people here from the film industry uh, the streaming services do send their scouts. Yeah? So we see a, new, a lot of new people coming in from other creative sectors. So the big agents do have a music section. They do have a film section. They do, would do sports management as well. So what we're seeing is this convergence of media and this spring will bring growth to Frankfurt.
0: Excellent. So a, a lot of content-hungry people out there and luckily a lot of people to provide that content. Jürgen, thank you so much for speaking to us. It's
3: been wonderful. Talk Uh, to you
0: soon. Bye. That was Jürgen Wyss joining us from Frankfurt Bookmeister. And just before we go, well, Simon, we were talking about the social side of uh, Frankfurt Book Fair and, of course, uh, the hotel life, everybody congregating at the Hof or wherever, having massive parties all night. Uh, But I see The Australian is reporting that New York's most notorious hotel has reopened. This, of course, is the Chelsea Hotel. Tell us more about this story.
2: Yes, you're right, absolutely. So according to The Australian, uh, it's uh, the hotel has opened 11 years after closing and uh, the sort of legally fraught uh, situation around that, which the piece doesn't explore. But anyway, a lovely quote here that uh, Sex Pistols fans, you know, the famous punk rock band... We're always trying to book the Sid and Nancy room, laughs uh, toad, uh, Tony Notabaradino, who's an Australian photographer who's lived in the hotel since 1994. And this, you might remember, was, uh, this is actually apparently room 100, in case you're ever interested in going there, on the hotel's first floor, is where Sid Vicious, uh, the lead singer of the Sex Pistols, allegedly murdered his girlfriend, Nancy Spungen back in 1978. So, um, apparently the, the hotel got so fed up with uh, people asking for the, the Sid and Nancy Room, which was not like sort of wonderful, you know, romance and, and honeymoon suite. Obviously, as I say, um, but they've now just called it one, Room 100. In case you're interested in, in visiting it, but as well as uh, as Vicious and Spongen, uh, the uh, as the paper points out, the dizzying roster of guests includes Bob Dylan, Ledland Cohen. Patti Smith, Andy Warhol, Lou Reed, Janis Joplin, Iggy Iggy Pop, Blondie, Madonna. The most amazing collection of people um, uh, who have stayed in this hotel over the years. Writers, artists, singers, whatever. And now it's open again. And according to the piece and and the pictures, lovely pictures, obviously, of the hotel in the Australian, it does seem to have been refurbished, but it does seem to be completely unique, I have to say. I imagine if you wanted to book a room there, you are probably looking at a, you know, uh, uh, having to do it probably in about for a 2025 or something. But certainly, uh, you know, an absolute amazing piece of history and wonderful to see, as I say, that it's been refurbished but still keeps that uh, slightly crazy essence that it's so famous for. No,
0: absolutely. Do you think that buildings can absorb perhaps the energy or emotions if an emotion has been felt terribly strongly in a room? Do you think that that, that can be held I think
2: so. I mean, whether it comes from us because we have that knowledge or perhaps of what happened there. But even if we don't, yeah, you certainly walk into some rooms or whatever and you get a strange frisson strange feeling or something don't you Or certainly in a hotel like this yeah you can imagine the plaster the ornamentation the details or whatever it must have absorbed not just the, the drugs but,
0: but <laughs> the, I the can bodily imagine. fluids absolutely.
2: goodness <laughs> me goodness knows what else uh, was, was splattered all over them but i mean the most yeah certainly the vibe of the place absolutely uh, there must be something in as i say that the plaster and the bricks or whatever that absorbs those those decades of culture creativity madness or whatever ever. Um, And I'm sure if you walk into it now, which I'd love to do, as I say, I'm going to try and book. Uh, you know, you probably probably feel uh, that 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 atmosphere is still still very much there, as if it was, uh, you know, when it uh, when the hotel had first opened, or in its heyday. Um, you know, with Patti Smith and and William Burroughs, Patti Smith drawing William Burroughs falling around drunk, the the great writer falling around drunk in the the hotel lobby. I mean, you know, you had to be a fly on the wall.
0: Absolutely. Well, if you are interested in hotels and where to stay, uh, do pick up or do uh, subscribe to our uh, weekend edition email because the Monocle concierge looks uh, every week uh, uh, at at various questions Uh, and today it's all about where to stay in Tokyo and there's some great hotel recommendations there. Uh, That's it for this week. Uh, Simon Brook thank you very much for joining me. Thanks also to Jürgen Boos who we spoke to earlier the CEO of Frankfurt Bookpicer and uh, of course tomorrow Monocle on Sunday will be here with Tyler Brulé and Emma Nelson Uh, and uh, that's it from me, I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening.